Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps has traveled into either the past or the future this week, we're not sure which, but we'll catch up with him at some point soon because time is a flat circle. On the first half of this episode, we looked at Carnival of Souls, Herc Harvey's eerie 1962 horror drama about a woman who emerges from a seemingly fatal car accident into a world that seems to have rejected her. Or maybe she's rejected it. In the second half, we're pairing it with David Lowry's tremendous Sundance hit, A Ghost Story, in which a man played by Casey Affleck dies in a car crash, leaving behind his lover, Rooney Mara, and watching her from the shadows as a ghost. Lowry is the writer-director of a previous Next Picture Show discussion topic, Disney's modern-day remake of Pete's Dragon. And he's also worked with Affleck and Mara before on his movie Ain't Them Bodies Saints. This movie, made independently while he was wrapping post-production on Pete's Dragon, is a very personal one. It started with an argument between himself and his wife, and with his mental image of Affleck with a sheet over his head in a costume that looks like it was borrowed from the kids on Peanuts. But Lowry uses subtle technical tricks, eerie music, and a perfectly established hushed tone to turn that silly image into something melancholy, approachable, and ultimately fascinating as Affleck's character goes on a solemn journey through time and Mara's character stays behind to mourn him. So we're going to talk about how he achieves his effects, about the false starts in the film and what they say about what he meant to do, and about what this film and Carnival of Souls each say about the human condition and the afterlife. When I was little and we used to move all the time, I would write these notes, and I would fold them up really small, and I would hide them. What did they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember, so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. So guys, it's no secret that I'm a humongous fan of Ghost Story. I saw it at Sundance. I loved it. I immediately tried to get an interview with David Lowry about it and was told, nope, this this film instantly sold to A24. He's not doing any more press. So he's doing lots of it now. He's doing lots of it now. I got to interview him and it was a fabulous interview. Uh, I, I talked to him for The Verge and it was one of those 20 minute interviews that you want to be a three hour interview. So one of the reasons we're doing this movie is because I said, we have to do this movie. <laughs> More or less in that tone of voice. Knowing that if you have anything negative to say about it, uh, I will loathe you and haunt you from, from the other side. What did you guys make of a ghost story? Well. 
Well, um, that's promising. No, no, I, it, it's I'm still processing it. I saw it last night quite late. I, the more I get away from it, the more I like it, which is mm-hmm. a good sign. Because while I was watching it, I I think I expected to have a more emotional re- reaction to the film. That the film was going to be, you know, about grief and loss in some way and that was like the primary theme and i was just going to really feel this relationship in a profound way and i did not but i also don't know if that's really what the movie is either as i get away from it and whether what i ended up feeling instead is is a bad thing at all at all the film has a quality to it and uh, there are just images that continue to kind of play in my mind and sort of overcome my first reaction to the film which is to sort of flinch at its preciousness but i think i'm kind of getting over that a little bit um i'm curious to hear what you have to say about it well I, i've had a whole extra 24 hours to process the, the <laughs> film that then you have i saw it two nights ago okay and i definitely agree it, it's a film I, I just did not know what to make of when the credits started to roll it didn't an, end in an unsatisfying manner but it still didn't feel like it was over for me like i felt that there was still a lot of processing i needed to do about this movie like it it didn't feel like a finite experience watching this movie and like as i walked home with my boyfriend and we talked about it and as i've thought about it over the next couple days i've had the same experience where i'm like yeah i i I really liked that it was a movie that i could never take my eyes off of it was very visually beautiful and interesting Mm -hmm. uh throughout so i was constantly engaged in that respect as far as unpacking the larger story or themes or messages that's something i'm still figuring out and that is both really awesome and a little frustrating because like it's like movie just be movie you know, <laughs> you know? let me let me think of you as as a movie and not like a thing that is going to haunt me for the next several days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing the degree to which the word haunting and haunted comes up in conjunction with this movie. I've written a bunch of different things about this movie and I keep coming back to that word and I keep rolling my eyes at myself because it just, it feels like a cheap pun, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's just the only word I can think of to describe how this movie has lingered in my my memory and my emotions. I found it amazingly uh, emotionally moving mm, and okay. evocative, Scott, on, on first viewing. Oh, okay. The second You're viewing... more perceptive than, than I am on the first view. I need multiple viewings to really kind of get it all. It was a very different movie for me on the second viewing because I had much more of a sense of where it was going. And I, I, I will freely admit that one of the reasons I loved it the first time through is because it's unexpected. It's it does things that I was not expecting, and I respect that perhaps to too great a degree in films. Oh, oh Tasha, I'll tell you what. I, I can feel that because there was a stretch last week where I watched three straight Sundance movies of, I thought, very good middling quality. One was the Marty Knox and To, to the bone. bone. To the Bone. And then I saw uh, The Big Sick, and then I saw The Incredible Jessica James. James, right, and it was just like, oh, this is a, these are need to be more movies, <laughs> and and they need to have to to not feel so conventional for it. Like, give me an independent film with a little ambition and a little bit of like soul and kind of like, you know, a, a really distinct, strong vision, and you certainly get that from a ghost story. And it's just fascinating to think about its play on the haunted house movie mm-hmm. and, and because obviously we see things from the other angle all oh, that's what we see in, a, in the haunting and every other film is just trying to figure out well these ghosts are trying to send us a message and what is that message and why are they so restless and this sort of thing and just sort of flip that around and see it from the other 
perspective, I mean, it's unique and um, it is powerful in its way. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it didn't move me in terms of that that central relationship between uh, uh, Casey Affleck and uh, Rooney Mara, but that journey through time. Uh, is you know pretty stunning so as as far as the story about grief and about a relationship and uh, tasha you in the opening you mentioned the film's false starts is that is that kind of what you're talking about how it be oh how it starts? no i'm talking about uh scott's favorite thing of all time extra textuals huh. oh got it got and it, we got can it. get into that in a minute but did you have a thought yeah, specifically because yeah, i was just kind of thinking about the idea that like this movie starts out being one thing and then becomes something drastically different and bigger and less about a specific interpersonal relationship. And I think that is very admirable and interesting. And, you know, this film would not be half the film it is if it didn't do that. But I think because you are primed with that story about C and M, which is the only way the characters are, are named in the film, and then it stops being about them it, i think you're kind of left at a little bit of an emotional loose ends or, or you have to like transfer that emotion onto something bigger and less specific and that's i think can be a, a hard switch to do emotionally but the film pulls it off whether viewers respond to it i think might be a, a more personal thing but yeah, I I mean I think I here's the thing. I agree 100% with your analysis and then I disagree with your your kind of emotional connotation out of it. Mm-hmm. Because for me, I guess I was never sold like this isn't ghost. This isn't yeah. about the the deep emotional connection between two people that lingers after life. This isn't about two people who are each other's one true love. After Affleck dies, Rooney Mara's character moves on. Yeah. We we see her with someone else. We he moves on in a very different way. But we see what their relationship was like beforehand, and it's literally touching. But it's also there are arguments, there mm-hmm. are disconnects between them. They're not any kind of perfect couple, and I, I actually think that that makes this movie more trenchant mm-hmm. and more interesting than if they were some kind of idealized romantic ideal that were separated by death. I, I think it's so much more interesting that we're seeing the sense that there's something unresolved for him, but that she has the ability to move on. And eventually, while she suffers some pretty tragic and, and painful grief, she is capable of moving on. She's He's stuck and she's not. Well, it kind of fits into the larger theme of this movie in that like grief is a point in time. It is not eternal. You work through it and it's always there. Like this, this space in the world that the movie takes part in is always there, but it changes over time, you know, and it it can disappear. But I think like the real relationship of this movie is between the ghost or, or Casey Affleck's character and the house. Like that is the main romance if you want to frame it that way. And we're certainly primed for that in the scenes when he's alive and him not wanting to to move and to get extra textual about it. Like that's kind of what inspired Lowry to make this movie like him arguments he was having with his wife over over moving you know and feeling connected to a a specific place and when that connection takes precedence over your connection to a person once i kind of clicked on that the the movie like kind of fell into place for me both its function as a haunted house movie and kind of its emotional arc as well as just its its narrative arc. I don't want to say it's like the key to this movie because there's a lot about the plot of this movie that is very abstract and like not really wanting to be solved. 
But I think if you look at it through the lens of it being about the relationship between the ghost and the house, it's a lot easier to track what is happening. Hmm. Scott, you have any thoughts in general? Like, I mean, how did you react to that central, the relationship between the two characters? Did, did it move you? Did, it, did you connect with it? Are you meant to? No, not particularly. I don't. I guess we're not. We don't spend a lot of time with them. But but I do. I do like that it is, as Genevieve said, a complicated, imperfect relationship. It's not just some beautiful, precious love that that he's holding on to beyond, beyond the grave. It's messy. It's a real relationship. And she, you know, after eating a tremendous amount of pie, <laughs> um, is able to to move past it and move out of that space. And he's stuck there but i guess i'm just trying to think about his relationship to that space and in the in the need for him or the need for the narrative to come back to loop all the way back around Mm -hmm. to him you know being in the house again and Mm -hmm. and him find him you know eventually getting his hands on that note and and whatever that says i want to go back to the pie okay Because people are so obsessed with that I, pie, right? The thing that stuck out in a lot of the lead up to this movie is Rudy Mara eats a whole pie, and I was like, and that we we watch her eat the whole pie. Like I, I knew a lot about this movie going in, just kind of the hazard of our jobs and editing stuff about mm-hmm. this movie. But I knew that like we sat there and watched her eat a whole pie, so like I was prepared for that, and I was excited for it to happen. She wait, does- wait, wait! You were excited to watch someone eat a whole pie. Well. Yeah, go to pie eating contests. <laughs> I, I'm I, not saying it's I, impossible. I, it's a spectator I just, sport. I to, I was, I was, why? I was curious. I was curious to see how it worked. Mm-hmm. Okay, like curious to see if it worked. I mean, you open your mouth and you put in food. <laughs> but in terms of the film, this sure. is like, this is a short film. You know what? What is the point of giving however many minutes of it over to someone eating a pie? So I was curious how that would work. She doesn't eat that whole pie. She no. leaves the whole crust. Anyone can yeah. eat the filling of a pie. The crust is the wait, hard part. Wait, take me take me back to that one again. Anyone can eat the filling of a whole pie. I mean, I can. Yeah, they didn't. What it was like? It was like a pumpkin pie looked like. Uh, um, I think it, was, it was like a chocolate vegan pie. Ugh. What? That's really oh, see, specific. That... How would you know that? I I don't know it from the film. I know it from the reading extensively about the film. Oh, the film uh, like what what she was. No, I will actually say I will eating. say that okay. that you can't. Yeah, you you couldn't eat that if it were chocolate. That would be terrible. Yeah. Oh, I'd, ra- eat, I'd rather pumpkin. eat the filling of an entire chocolate vegan pie than a pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie pies are disgusting. <laughs> but. <laughs> I can't believe you like pumpkin pie. This is terrible. Okay, this is going to be a thing. She likes lettuce on top of her oh, pumpkin pie. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I like lettuce on top of my chocolate vegan pie. Oh, my gosh. Did I, I just can't... say I like chocolate on my vegan. chocolate pie? Yeah. It's all ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. I like lettuce on top of my chocolate vegan pie. That's that's all oh, I'm wow. saying. Wow. I am, I am stunned by this pumpkin pie revelation. <laughs> Who doesn't like pumpkin pie? It's delicious. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I'm going to leave Scott conceptually sitting on the floor yeah. eating the, the center of... Right. Uh, a pumpkin pie yeah and come back to the fact that we were just talking about this before the podcast uh you you, you have a little revelation about rooney mara's relationship to pie i believe what oh that she had never eaten pie before this, oh yeah God. yeah which is just like you, you get these little factoids about yeah. movies and during during the press you know run and Rooney Mara never having eaten pie is just—it's oh, so wonderful. It's so because of course she hasn't. She's like a human alien, you know. Yeah. She, she's just such a strange presence, yeah. you know, on this earth, and it absolutely makes sense that she has never eaten pie while making no sense at all that a human in the world for two and a half decades or however old she is has Hollywood never eaten elites. Pie. <laughs> no pie. I just think it's it's kind of amazing the things that people get to try for the first time because they're doing it on film. Yeah, you know. I, I, 
zip lining or <laughs> smoking or running away from a gigantic explosion or eating pie. <laughs> People should eat pie. But anyway, getting I was back- kind of excited actually about the pie scene in the sense that it, actually just those early scenes of the movie that reminded me very much of a Simon Liang movie because um, his films uh, often dealt with grief and feature you know very long static takes um, sometimes with certain comedic elements. I thought, oh boy, he's been uh, he's been watching his uh, Taiwanese cinema. Alas, it kind yeah. of it kind of moves at a different place stylistically. But I was sort of impressed by the rigor of some of those early scenes where where you do get these kind of long takes and the pie, pie scene being the, foremost among them. I think even more than the pie scene, the one that stuck out to me is the one in the I guess not a morgue, but the hospital where oh, uh, it's a morgue. Right. It it is okay. I mean, no, totally with one shot. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, he 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 talked in interviews about the fact that shot is sixty seconds long. Wow. And he felt and, and just to to clarify, since I kind of interrupted you. It's 60 seconds after Rooney Mara's character walks away from Casey Affleck's corpse. It's just 60 seconds of Casey Affleck lying under a sheet in the hospital. And Lowry said he he would have held it longer, but he figured that 60 seconds was like the maximum patience any human being would have it for felt, that. It felt so much longer, like in a good way. Like I wasn't yeah. like, can this be done yet? It was like, how long is he going to do this? And it does confuse you. I mean, just to be super literal minded about it, it does confuse you about his physical presence in that you are watching a, a human being that everyone can can see a dead person on a slab come to life with the sheet that has been placed over him. And then I think we're supposed to transition immediately into understanding that nobody can see him and the sheet doesn't exist and yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't mean the, the, to be like uh, the comic book guy about it. But. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's an element that like just I was willing to roll with. What I mm-hmm. I liked about the the reveal of this sheet ghost is that it seems to evoke like where that image of the sheet ghost came from, which is I mean I. I don't have research to back this up, and I'm pretty certain it comes from burial shrouds. And this sort of literalizes that transition from a burial shroud to a sheet ghost costume. That's a really interesting thought. Hmm. That makes me mad. That's a good insight. Damn it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Everybody's doing a lot of really interesting things tonight. I don't like it. Scott gets so threatened by by other people making trenchant insights or not liking his favorite pies. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of the I'm easily provoked. (laughs) Speaking of the whole, like, the idea of the the sheet ghost. Okay, so I mentioned false starts and extra textuals earlier. Mm -hmm. Apparently, David Lowry shot, like, weeks of footage for this film and then kind of stopped for a while and despaired because he just – he felt it wasn't working. He felt that Casey Affleck looked kind of ridiculous and the image that he had in his head of this, like, grown man who is meant to be, like, a very melancholy figure standing around with a bed sheet over his head with holes poked in it. He he felt that it just – it wasn't working at all. And he walked away from it and he came back and reshot all of that footage with Casey Affleck at 33 frames per second instead of 24. And then when he's shooting a human being in the same frame, that is a separate shot of the human beings at 24 frames per second. Mm. And then he composited them. This is all stuff that came out in my interview with him. And I just I find it so fascinating. I want to go see the film a third time. (laughs) I did not in any way notice. Yeah, I didn't catch that at all. He he, he Pete's Dragon 
fucking the whole thing up. I thought he, I thought he was doing something basic, and now he's compositing shots. <laughs> oh my god! Well, yeah, there's a lot more special effects in this than you realize. Some of that came out of the fact that he was still working on the end of Pete's Dragon, and he went to his friends at Weta and said, "Can you fix this for me? Can you do this for me?" Like the whole futurescape is something yeah. that Weta put together for him, which I guess is not that surprising. But anyway, my question there is. Did the whole guy with a sheet over his head thing work for you? Was, yes. W- were you thrown in yes. and out at no, all by that? No, I thought Never. in the 33 frames per second thing is really interesting and, and definitely contributes. But I was more just focused on how well executed that costume was. Because, you know, in theory, like a sheet over someone's head is just like the most basic ghost costume mm-hmm. you can do. But that was not a basic costume. Like the, the volume it had to mm-hmm. completely conceal like you, you never saw a figure underneath. You never saw any feet poking out or anything. Yeah. And the way the eyes worked, the completely black eyes, that made it not a Halloween costume. That made it yeah. a character. And I, and I just, I liked the wrinkles on the, the costume too. I don't know. There was this weird, I, this is what the nice thing about slow cinemas. You just kind of like yeah. spend time with an image and just kind of focus on odd stuff like that. And I found myself drawn to just to, to this uh, unlaundered, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah the way it gets dirty and ragged. Mm-hmm. It's... But also the way, you're right, the way it hangs. Okay, so fun trivia from the Q&A, the post-screening Q&A at Sundance. Wait, are you going to tell me how the how the costume was made? Kind of. Okay, I'm just wondering if it's a parachute, because I thought it might no, be a parachute. No, no, they, they didn't get into that, but okay. one of the things he said, people, it might have been me, I, I remember getting up and asking a question, I don't remember if it was this one, but I think it was, like asking if, you know, like if, if it was actually always Casey Affleck under there, and it was most of the time, sometimes it was his art director but a lot of times what you're seeing is two people under that sheet because they had so they had the costume manager under there managing the folds of the sheet wow. to make sure that it fell in a, a like a dramatic way in the way that he wanted it to look he said with with one person up the, under there it didn't have the right volume and the folds didn't fall the right way so they stuck somebody else under there which is something else i was watching for the second time through Speaking of the ghost costume, Tasha, you may know this, uh, but I'll, I'll ask anyway. Do you know who the uh, other ghost under the flowered bed sheet was? You you mean in terms of uh, like an actor or in terms yeah, of so the who, character? No, who the... the Kate Mara? Nope. <laughs> that was our director. That was David Lowry. Oh, how awesome. In, in, in his cameo. So as with Carnival of Souls, we have a, a director uh, playing a ghoul. So wow. there you yes. go. That is a perfect connection, and therefore it is a perfect way to segue neatly into the connection segment. where we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. We can certainly start off with The Afterlife. I mean, both of these films are about people who consciously reject 
the opportunity to move on to the next world, which I, I'm a little fascinated by that. The effect in a ghost story where uh, like a door to what presumably is the next life, the mm-hmm. next stage of life opens up and Affleck's character stands in front of it and chooses to not go through it is so fascinating to me. First, because it's such a cheap effect. Mm-hmm. It looks like something out of Phantasm. <laughs> like it looks like something from that era. But you have him just choosing not to go on to the next thing. And in Carnival of Souls, Mary dies and makes the conscious decision to come back from that to fight her way back. So in both of these cases, you've got kind of afterlives that have been rejected by people who still end up in kind of a, a between state. But Genevieve, you suggested this connection. What were you thinking of with the the afterlife? It's interesting that you set it up that way, because I, I guess I didn't read Carnival of Souls as uh, Mary making a a conscious d- decision. I don't think we we know how she ended up not moving on. You know, yeah. she, she she just appears, but it's certainly a conscious choice in a ghost story. You're right. We can't actually use conscious in either case because we don't have that much insight into what the experience of being under that sheet is like. It is possible that in both cases, it's just an entirely instinctive, I have unfinished business mm-hmm. thing. And that's really interesting. There's yeah. a choice, though, in a ghost story. I mean, that that wouldn't have opened up if he didn't have the opportunity. Yeah, but I, I don't know. If, but it. I don't know if it's a choice that we can look at through the lens of human logic. Once you die, you're you're not human anymore. Like you, I, I, you, we can't look at these characters as human characters. There's something else. There's something we can't really mm. understand or apply our human perceptions to. Although, I mean, aren't we encouraged to apply a certain amount of human pathos to both of them? Yeah. yeah. And empathy, I think. I, I, I think you, you, you feel for both of them and their, the dilemma. You know, Mary is more real to me than any of the other characters in that film in terms of my connection with whatever she is going through is odd a character as she is. See, I don't know that I felt empathy with the ghost in a ghost story. Like, I don't know that I was like rooting for him to move on. It was I was curious mm. and I was invested in, in what he was doing, but it wasn't like I wasn't rooting for him. I don't necessarily associate empathy in, in either rooting or uh, like having a desire. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't necessarily have a desire for him to move on, but I felt very sharply the pain of that stagnation, that mm-hmm. that being lost, that that having something that was holding him there, much like the other ghost, which he talks to, which like I don't know about when you guys saw it, but when both times I saw it, there was kind of a ripple of uncomfortable to delighted laughter through the audience every time the two of them had those exchanges mm-hmm. because they're such strange exchanges. But like I don't I don't necessarily feel a goal for him i just feel like what a lonely existence what a yeah. what a sad place to be in but there are there are times though in a ghost story where he does make his presence felt out of frustration or jealousy or some need to connect with the occupants of the house i'm thinking of thinking of him smashing all of the plates and and glasses in a very very classic ghost form with the glass of milk drifting around well, yeah um and he's he's angry about these uh this family that is occupying his home and then and then the bit with the piano that kind of ties everything mm-hmm. together too you know there's there's 
frustration there and upset. Yeah, I guess I guess kind of what I'm driving at more is that we can only connect to these characters like through that emotional connection, not necessarily through a rational connection. Like in a ghost story, there's a part of me that's like, just move on, dude. You know you can move on. <laughs> this doesn't have to be this way. Just you know? eat the so, pie crust. Come yeah. on, Renamara. <laughs> well, you know, that that's a very human thing to do. And I think like once you move on to the afterlife, there's something else dictating those characters' actions beyond rational thought. Yeah, well, there seem to be rules of some sort keeping them in place. Yeah, too. well, cer- certainly in A Ghost Story, which uh, holds pretty strongly, I think, to the rules of Haunted House and, and Ghost yeah, Stories, you know. I mean, they're both stuck, but it is more in the ghost story. I mean, I mean yeah, in Carnival of Souls, it's a little harder to track what the rules of, of that mm-hmm. afterlife are in terms of like the extent that she can communicate with either side of the great beyond yeah (laughs) sometimes on and off that said i mean to me both of these afterlives are intensely grim i mean we don't know what's on the other side of that door maybe it's reincarnation maybe it's a glorious paradise uh it's it's very light over there there's a lot of light there don't seem to be a lot of like cackling demons and fire so we don't know where he's supposed to be but where he is is a place where he can't touch or communicate with people He's isolated both from like his own humanity, his own emotions, and from the passage of time, which moves very strangely around him. But she even more so, she's stuck between people that she doesn't like and who don't understand her and what appears to be an eternity of waltzing in this horrible space with these uh ghoulish figures like is that all there is to the other side like why but she seems to be enjoying it like in this in the sequence when she sees herself like in his arms oh i don't think so at all i I think her face looks looks dead and miserable well maybe that's just the afterlife version of happy (laughs) (laughs) oh boy talk about having difficulty interpreting uh the emotions of uh, something that isn't human Wow, that is that is some serious Uncanny Valley thing. All right, well, let's talk a bit about the music in both cases, because I think the music in those waltzing scenes is also kind of dreadful and ponderous and, and heavy and scary and is giving you emotional cues about how to feel. I talked earlier about how the organ music is sort of a link between the physical world and the the spiritual world. But what interests me in Carnival of Souls so much is that it's also a link between religious music and the calliope music of a carnival. Yeah, I actually had to like look up the relationship between calliopes and organs to see if they were oh. the same thing. And they kind of are. Calliope is, works on the same premise. It's, it's a steam organ, basically. It's very interesting the way that that instrument can transition from the spiritual realm of the church, which is, I think, if most people have experienced organ music being played live, it's in a church. I know that's certainly the only place I've ever, ever mm-hmm. heard it. And the very profane, I guess, yeah. world of, of circus music, you know? And profane. Yeah. So, no, it's it's kind of a, a brilliant conceit. And this is just like such a little detail, and this seems like the only place I can highlight it. But in Carnival of Souls, when we meet Johnny, the organ music makes like an approximation of the sleazy saxophone noise. <laughs> like, the <laughs> rah, 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 rah. Well, that's incredible. <laughs> and it's just like hearing that from an organ is just very delightful. Oh, that's amazing. 
What do you make of the music in a ghost story, though? There are musical segments that are very narrative driven, where he tries to sort of solve an argument by playing her his music, where she relives that music later on when she's alone after he's dead in a scene that reminds me a lot of one of Scott's favorite films, Morven Collar. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that music that is left for you, that is left by your partner after he or she dies, I guess that, that would be an interesting connection between the two mo- movies. And I, that was that, that song and, and the way it's employed in the film, that was really the one point where you know i felt the most uh, emotionally like engaged in this relationship i mean that's a, the music has the power to do that um i think it's a pretty good song or it's a good song for the in the context of the film and um it just takes on that associative quality i mean you, once you hear it the one time when it appears it appears again that I mean, it appears throughout the movie. I mean, the the song was written by Daniel Hart, who's Lowry's uh, musical collaborator on on all his films, including Pete's Dragon, which I think we also talked a little bit about the music in yeah. that in that movie when when we talked about it. And Came on the water. But to go back to Daniel Hart, yes. he wrote this song, and Lowry became kind of obsessed with it, and they kind of ended up building the whole score around this song. And um, I think it really works in the the context of the movie, and like kind of always having this connection point, the same way that like the ghost is connected to this space and time that is always changing. The movie is connected to this song that is also always changing, but is always always exists there. Um, I, I think that's just really kind of beautiful. And I guess since we're talking about music, I also have to highlight that there is another song in here co-written by Kesha, who also appears briefly in the movie in the party scene, which is just like, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, who else is in that party scene is Will Oldham, who is, oh, yeah. you know, I, I mean, he's, Billy, right? he is known yeah. as a, a musician. That is that is his thing. Mm-hmm. And he's here giving an insane rambling speech about the heat death of the universe. And- God, I would leave that party. <laughs> like, thanks for summing up the central idea of the movie, dude, but you're a buzzkill. I'm going to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it's fascinating how when that when that speech begins, he's just like talking to a couple of like clearly pretty drunk people at a table. But. By the time it's over, it seems like the entire party has fallen into a hush to listen to him. I would be the person in the other room having a loud discussion about anything else. Yeah, I do love Will Oldham, though. I mean, it's a, it's a great performance, but at the same time, well, I, I talked to Lowry extensively about what that speech is meant to mean. The, the film used to be a lot more dialogue heavy, and he cut it way, way back because he, again, he felt he felt it was taking too long to get to the ghost. Mm-hmm. But he left that giant speech in, and I, I had to know why, and I asked him about it. Because it just, to me, it kind of unbalances the movie to have this great big speech especially since it's a speech that I don't think the movie means. But yeah, we talked about that a bunch, and I think the results were interesting. It's a pretty big and and, uh, risk that pays off that song. It seems just like it's the right pitch because you can't use some sort of pre-recorded song or song that you might be familiar with or is from a recognizable artist. It has to be something that plausibly could be created by this this character and on a certain level, but also be a pretty good song and be resonant in some way. Like it kind of hits a very narrow target. 
I also just love the staging of it so much. Like at the end of the argument, when he puts the headphones on her and plays her the song, she does not seem particularly engaged with it. I think that given that the argument is about how he wants to stay and she wants to move, I think he's saying, we have to stay here. Look, I'm creating and this is what I'm creating. And it's awesome. And she's like, "Uh uh-huh. But then after he's dead, when she's listening to it again and she's lying on the floor and she slowly reaches out her hands and almost touches him. That is such a profound and painful moment as far as I was concerned. You know, he she is literally almost managing to connect with her dead boyfriend through his music. I, I wanted to talk about time and the way that works in, in, in both films because, again, we're sticking with the perspective of someone who is not human or fully human, whatever, just a ghost. Uh, and how do they experience time uh, in relation to us? And what are the rules that apply? And I have a question for you about a ghost story. Just how does time work in, in, in it? I mean, you know, you have that scene where he jumps from the building in the next shot. He is He's way, way, way in the past, mm-hmm. right? Is he moving through time like a human being would? Are we? Sp- I mean, I think it's. I mean, he's is he there for centuries or? I I don't know about like it in human time necessarily, but I think in terms of like the logic of the movie, him falling off the building is him like trying to escape this space that he has chained himself to, and now that the house is gone, has no means of escaping. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. have the closure he needs to move on he doesn't have a way to access that closure so in attempting to escape throw himself off the building he just like kind of falls into the space time of this place like basically the entire fabric like the past present and future of this space Mm -hmm. he's in it he can move freely through it to get back to the point maybe where he can gain that closure again you know he has to he has to circle back around basically and in terms of like how long that takes in human years like if he's like going through it in real time or if he's like moving through it in some like ghostly fashion i don't know i i don't think that the movie tells us or necessarily even wants us to know I think that the movie does tell us. I think that sequence where he is standing by as he sees the Bruno Mars character leave out the door like three or four times in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the the number of times he turns around in, within the household and clearly significant time has passed. Like he's yeah. he's alone in the house and he turns around and this new family has moved in and appear very settled. Or he turns and around. Just, you don't take that as just a transition. No. transition on the movie's part. You I feel think like that's, that's absolutely that's what he's experiencing. Huh. I think that that's just kind of like brilliantly weird. He's fixed to a, a physical point in space because there's something there that he wants, but he isn't fixed in time because time is a human construct, and he's he's outside of life. I want a quantum physicist to uh, to write in and tell us what they think. So, all our quantum I'm physicists so fascinated with, with Who, Which one of you is going to be first? I'm so fascinated with the way time works in, in movies. So I, I, I just saw the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar in 70 millimeter, and it just it completely blew me away in a way that it didn't when I saw it at first. And if you recall, there's a whole sequence you know, where they're visiting various planets that are may be suitable for human you know habitation and the first one they go to is this planet in which an hour 
spent on this planet is seven years in human time, and of course they get stuck there. And you know, when they're back three hours later, twenty, you know, three plus hours later, you know, twenty three years have passed on Earth, and it's a very powerful uh, moment in the film. I mean, there's a whole sequence where he's going through twenty three years of his children's video messages, and it's just like it just hits you like a ton of bricks. And in any case, this whole ramble is about how affecting time can be when deployed in a movie in a, in a very um, you know deliberate way. But I, but this one, a ghost story, I was just uncertain, maybe in a good way, about how that relativity works in terms of time. I don't I don't know. And maybe that's fine that I don't know, but I wasn't I think sure. It's all just relative to his experience. I, I think it's relative to his goal. Like there's one thing that he's fixed on and everything else, like the physical space, mm-hmm. the idea of time can just kind of spin around that, but none of it's none of it's vital. Yeah, it goes back to what I was talking about before with the afterlife of like not being able to apply a human rationale or a human logic to what's happening. Like it's it's ghost logic. It's ghost time. It, it works differently. It's ghost it's time. Ghost time. <laughs> well, this is connections. Did either of you have any thoughts about how time works in Carnival of Souls? It's definitely more straightforward, but it mm-hmm. also is kind of strange that it's only what, three days later that, that the car is, like, she's only gone for three days, which seems wrong. Like, it seems like she is in, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it specifically Utah mm-hmm. that she is Yeah, in? she moves on to Utah. Okay. Yeah. It no, seems no, no, like, I mean, well, she starts in Kansas. Right. Yeah. So you figure it, it at least takes, what, half a day to a day to get to <laughs> Utah from Kansas? Like, yeah. it, it, it seems like she is in Utah for longer than the, the three days that takes them to take the car out of the water which indicates to me that like time is not working the same way in whatever reality she is currently in but i i honestly don't know if that is something that her carvey was thinking about when in making this movie like obviously david lowry has very specific ideas or notions about time that inform a ghost story i don't know if that's necessarily happening in carnival of souls but there does seem to be a sort of removal from time that in that movie that I can't quite wrap my... I actually find it more confusing <laughs> than the very confusing uh, timeline of a ghost story. Hmm. I don't know. Do either of you have an explanation? No, not for Carnival of Souls. I Strangely, with Carnival of Souls, I'm a little more inclined to think it was just not entirely thinking through yeah. that aspect. I was of trying the to dance around that when, when I said like it wasn't on Harvey's mind. But yeah, like just maybe they didn't fully think it through i mean it's possible that we're like given that we're spending every significant moment of the time that she exists with her it seems like certain things take longer than others like she seems to go to into sort of a a dreamy space where time doesn't matter when she's exploring the carnival but like every moment that she spends with johnny just feels very dragged (laughs) out so you know time time is relative (laughs) scott you had suggested uh talking a little bit about the genre of these two films Mm -hmm. like speaking of films that operate in strange spaces both of these films are are really hard to pin down genre wise. They they really are. I mean, I think they're horror adjacent. But I, as I was sort of uh, jokingly complaining about on Twitter last <laughs> night, it's like maybe one jump scare in all of a ghost story. I mean, it's a hell of a jump scare. I mean, my my boyfriend was sitting next to me and he just about fell out of his seat when it <laughs> happened. I knew it was coming. And was bracing for it the whole time. Is this the, is this the um, the wrecking ball? Okay, the wrecking ball. Right. I think there's one more. 
No, there's another one where um, uh, so see, your Rudy, tweet is already false. Rudy, Rudy Mara, <laughs> I know, I, I lie, I'm a dude. Lie. That's true. The, the Wrecking Ball was kind of a shock, wasn't it? What, what was the, what was the one you were? The scene where they're it's got looped back in time and they're looking at the house and she knocks on the window. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. just me, just I'm just me, jumpy, just generally. That, I mean, but version. but that actually feels more in line with the type of jump scare that you would get in a modern yeah. horror movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the wrecking ball's the, the, real. the fake out. Yeah, like yeah. A, yeah, the wrecking ball is a, ball is a real. huge moment. Yeah, and I, and I I think like I said they're both horror adjacent films. I mean, I think you could straight up classify Carnival of Souls as a horror film uh, in a way you really wouldn't with a ghost story, but a ghost story certainly comments on the genre and utter, totally reverses the premise of, of every other haunted house movie in which human beings are having to puzzle over what these sounds are and what these ghosts really want. But now we see it from the, another angle. It's about the horror of being a ghost, not of having a ghost. And it's not even necessarily about the horror of being a ghost. That's a really interesting thought, Scott, in terms of sort of the inscrutability of it. Because in so many haunted house movies, the the question is, how dangerous is this going to get? Like, how dangerous are these ghosts to us? Can they hurt us? What What will they do to us? And in a ghost story, it's kind of how dangerous is the mortal world to me? Like is, can it give me anything that I want? Can I interact with it in any meaningful way? It's like, it's not a physical threat to him, but it is sort of an existential threat. Yeah. You kind of, briefly said that you think it's easier to classify Carnival of Souls as a, as a horror movie. I've, it's got ghouls and you know, I mean, it's got a some, ghost it's, story has a ghost. I mean, I, but it's, <laughs> right, but it's, you know, you could say all, all the material at the Carnival of Souls is is pretty eerie and, and you're being assaulted by these figures that would be very highly influential on George Romero and on you know, horror films to come, even though the film's overall has much more of a more Genevieve friendly <laughs> it's you know. eerie we, I, yeah I, I, eerie right I, I, exactly. I need a classification of horror films that are just eerie yeah <laughs> it is that it is that but I know this is a favorite of, of Tasha's too but we'll have to pair something with Eyes Without a Face bring you on board on for that <laughs> one too there was something earlier that I was really trying hard to pair with Eyes Without yeah. a Face and yeah that, that that film seems to get referenced an awful lot so uh, it's, it's possible it'll come up again yeah the great big influential ones always are mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem like uh, people 40 years from now are going to be pairing ghost story with much, but I imagine they'll still be watching Carnival of Souls uh, because it was just, it was, as you say, it was really influential back in its day. George Romero, rest in peace, uh, certainly somebody who, who saw it. And I think a lot of other filmmakers of that era were influenced by just its sort of eeriness. So I don't know. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe a ghost story will actually prompt another wave of eerie horror films to not make Genevieve and her boyfriend fall out of their we've been getting some. We've been getting some interesting, you know, not horror, horror adjacent yeah, films. Sure. Get Out is kind of is a horror film, but it's got a, got a lot of other things happening. Yeah, too. this is just this has been a really good year for horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carnival of Souls is available in a variety of streaming and disc options, including a Criterion release. It's also available on some of the lesser-discussed streaming services like Shudder and Fandor, as well as our beloved Filmstruck, where you can see Criterion's many special features, delving into the film's origins and other details about it. A Ghost Story is currently in arthouse theaters, and we recommend watching it there, where it can best cast its spell over you. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show.
finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what have you got for us today? Well, I've been doing a lot of comfort viewing lately. I'm kind of falling behind on my new releases <laughs> and just like watching a lot of HGTV and movies I've already seen, so, which is me kind of hard for, for this segment in particular. Yeah. But um, yesterday, the, the day that we're recording this, was the bicentennial of the death of Jane Austen, which seemed like a really good excuse to watch a Jane Austen movie. And I chose Emma, which mm. 1996's Gwyneth Paltrow starring Emma, which is a movie I haven't seen in probably about 10, 15 years. And I love it. The, the movie it just it makes me really happy. I think it's got a lot of great performances. Um, a pre-goop Gwyneth Paltrow is yeah. probably like the least of the performances, and she's still, I think, quite good. But Tony Collette in this movie as Harriet Smith, uh, sort of the target of Emma's romantic machinations, is uh, a lot of fun, as is Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton. And if you know Jane Austen, you definitely know Emma. It's probably her most approachable and popular novel, aside from maybe Pride and Prejudice. Um, and of course, it also informs the movie I al- always cite as my favorite of all time, Clueless. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a story that I am very familiar with. Um, but I, I just I really love this rendition of it. It's um, not particularly flashy, but it really kind of allows the funniness or the cleverness of that character in particular of Emma Woodhouse to come through. And I think Paltrow, you know, does do actually a really good job bringing that character across sort of her her sweet yet cunning, I guess, uh, character characteristics. And it's just kind of a, a lovely, sweet little movie. I love the costumes in it. It's just a movie I like to sink back into every, apparently, 15 years. <laughs> so um, it's it's newly on Netflix, so easily watchable there. You know, it came a part of a wave of Austin adaptations that I t- tend to like more than it, but maybe yeah. I would like it if I read like Because like sensibility and... Persuasion, persuasion. Just it feels. Yeah. It definitely feels like the lighter option of that series of Austin. Well, and films. that's my point. Is I wanted some. I wanted comfort uh, viewing. I, it is the lighter option. But um, yeah, I mean, if if Austin adaptations aren't your thing, I mean, I'm not going to say you have to watch it. But uh, if they are, and you haven't watched it in a while, or if you've never seen it, I'd say it's a it's a fun one to go back to. Emma, Tasha, what about you? What do you got for us? Well, uh, for anybody who enjoys Carnival of Souls, I would recommend reading the original uh, Ambrose Bierce story, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Scott threw me for a second when he said, oh, that came out in 62, too. I was like, wait, that's a really old story. It it came out in 1890. But he's talking about the film adaptation, (laughs) which is also uh, Aces. It's a a short film. Incredible. So I would recommend that, but uh, in uh, more detail. So as I was researching this film, I ran across a couple of interviews or really a couple of uh, separately uh, posted parts of an interview between a man named Tom Weaver and Candace Hillegas about Carnival of Souls and more specifically about that 1998 remake. They're on a site called com, uh, which stands for the Astounding Bee Monster Archive. And I don't know how he got this access, but man, she is 
fearless and uh, and direct about how she feels about that remake. She had suggested and written, according to her at least, a sequel to Carnival of Souls. And she was very involved with it. She wrote a script for it. She got uh, Herc's permission to, to do it. She was part of the, the package for it. And then she just got edged out of it and was no longer allowed to be involved in it in any way. And boy, does she resent it. And boy, is she colorful about it. The remake was made under Wes Craven's banner. And she's in this interview talking about literally, she says, uh, Wes Craven, I think, should be hung by his thumbs at Hollywood and Vine for movie fans to stone because he <laughs> so devastated the intent of the original. Tom asks, do you happen to know how much Craven had to do with it? She says, it doesn't matter. It's under his umbrella and he's got his name pasted all over it. Plot-wise, it's more like one of his typical movies than like Carnival of Souls. Yes, his signature crap is all over it, too. <laughs> they keep saying that leading lady Bobby Bobby Phillips is from Showgirls, a fact which I would hide rather than play up. I did see Showgirls, but I don't remember which nude she was. I didn't recognize her. Maybe because now she has clothes on. Oh, God. The tone of, of both of these interviews. And, and uh, there are two different parts. Um, you can find them at bmonster.com slash horror 31 HTML and profile 18 HTML. But if you search for Tom Weaver, uh, Candace Hillegas, you'll find them both. There's just a pocket history of Carnival of Souls and the remake in general. And then just. <laughs> this uh, excoriating, no holds barred commentary about how everything she thinks is wrong about the remake and everything she thinks about the people who made the remake. It is colorful. It is bitchy. I recommend it highly. Oh, wow. um, but finally, I feel like as we're talking about Afterlives, I would be really remiss if I did not recognize my favorite film ever about the afterlife, which is called Afterlife. It's a Hirokazu Kurita film. He's the director of such uh, memorable and amazing films as Like Father, Like Son, I Wish, Hana, Distance. There's a bunch of other Nobody ones. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. A bunch of films that I know Scott's also a fan mm-hmm. of. Afterlife is from 1998. Duh, do not confuse it with the horror film from 2009. And it's about an afterlife where when you die, in Japan, presumably, when you die, you go to a great bureaucracy in the sky where a bunch of underpaid, uh, underfunded civil servants working on a tiny budget work with you to isolate your best memory, recreate it as a sort of home movie, and then show it to you in a theater before you pass on to the, the next stage. It is such a strange film, but it's one of my all-time favorites, both because the premise is so strange and because the execution is so quiet and, and thoughtful and down to earth. It's all about the, the process of picking out what is meaningful you, to you in life. And it's the mechanics of the whole thing are not entirely clear, but it's sort of, it's a little bit Be Kind, Rewind. It's a little bit Beetlejuice. It's a little bit a movie about what it's like to be a civil servant. And it, I, it's just a spectacular movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. And it was kind of unexpected at the time. I, I was a fan. He, I think it was his second film, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I saw his first film called Mabarossi. And uh, it's shot in that in, the, in a very super austere Asian master shot school. And Afterlife was a huge kind of break from it. Not thematically. The films are have an interesting connections thematically. But he kind of leapt towards a different style and now now he just does kind of peerless sort of dramas basically <laughs> just family dramas like he's really good and it's in, in, insightful so uh, I would certainly recommend seeing Afterlife but also just keep moving 
moving forward because he, he just he doesn't make bad movies. He everything I've seen by him I've liked. Yeah, he sort of looking into it. It was a second narrative film. He made a, a bunch of documentaries mm. before that that I don't know if they've been imported. But I agree. I, I've seen as because of Afterlife, I've seen as many narrative uh, films of his as I have gotten access to, and, and they've all been wonderful. Mm. So. Uh, Karina's Afterlife, highly recommended. Scott, what do you have for us this week? I have two okay films I want to recommend. <laughs> um, Are they Sundance films that you really think I, yeah, should be better? No, I, I can't. I can't with the Sundance. But I have, I'm passionate about certain elements of these films, so I wanted to mention them to you. One is a documentary called Nobody Speak. Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Trials of the Free Ooh, Press, which is, on, which is on currently on Netflix. Netflix produced it, and uh, I think they premiered it at Sundance as well. But this is a documentary about the suit brought against Gawker by Hulk Hogan, who argued successfully uh, that the site violated his privacy by publishing a sex tape. And for this, a jury o- awarded an, just an ungodly amount of money. Uh, and the suit led Gawker to plunge into bankruptcy and uh, and it led to its eventual dissolution as a company and as a presence on the web. And at the time, there was a fair bit of schadenfreude about Gawker's demise, given the site's tone and its journalistic mandate for hyper-aggression. Uh, plenty of people were happy to see it go. And while Nobody Speak is in, isn't a dazzling piece of documentary filmmaking, it does make a comprehensive and persuasive argument that the Gawker case had absolutely nothing to do with Hulk Hogan and everything to do... It, it was, in, in fact, a chilling uh, precedent for free speech and a, a direct attack on the Fourth Estate. You know, once Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire, comes into the picture, we realize that he is the, the person who has been financing this this lawsuit and designing that lawsuit in a way specifically to where insurance could not bail out Gawker, d- designing it specifically just to destroy this institution that had, had outed him many years before. It's kind of shocking and scary, and it makes you think, like, while well, other billionaires might have the capital to do this if a, a jury feels like, you know, they've crossed some sort of line or if they're convinced that they've crossed a line and it's um it's pretty scary stuff and uh you know the, the the film kind of goes a little bit too far in getting into the implications of the case but um at a time when the media is under constant assault from the white house you do start to fear for a world where gawker and a or a gawker like publication cannot exist without this kind of threat hanging over it it's a very sympathetic to to the gawker side of the case for sure i mean it makes no bones about it so the other film I wanted to kind of recommend is is in theaters uh, now uh, called Girls Trip. Mm-hmm. I and now I I have now seen and reviewed all three women behaving badly comedies of the summer: Snatched, Rough Night, and Girls Trip. And I think Girls Trip is the funniest of the three. And a big reason for that is an actress named Tiffany Haddish, who's a regular on the Carmichael Show, but isn't as widely known as her co-stars in the movie: Regina Hall, Queen Latifah, and Jada Pinkett Smith. And of the four, Haddish plays the most dedicated pleasure seeker of the group, uh, which itself is sort of notorious for getting into trouble uh, when they were younger. And and when Haddish is on, the the level of absolute filthiness is just astonishing. I mean, just stunning, the things that come out of her mouth. And yet she sells it with this, like, devilish smile that, that passes over her face right before she's about to, to to say or do something absurd you know it's just, it's just so charming in its way even though it's you know also just shocking and ag- aggressive and and it kind of knocks you you know kind of scorches 
your brow a bit. So uh, I mean, the film, I think itself is it gets a little bit bogged down uh, by dramatic some plots, particularly towards the end. But but when Tiffany Haddish and these other actresses are out on the town, uh, the movie is a tremendous amount of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've seen a, a ton of praise for her specifically mm-hmm. in that movie, but also just uh, a lot of pleasantly surprised reactions yeah, to that movie. Overnight sensation. <laughs> that is a name that people are now going to, to yeah. know. Tiffany Haddish. You, you heard it here, not first at all, but <laughs> you heard it here as well. Girls Trip. So as somebody who's seen uh, all three of those movies, I'm, I'm so behind on my Girls Behaving Badly comedies. Where where should I start? Which which of those is the best? Is it, is I do, it, no, this is the best one. I think Girls one? Trip and then Rough Night and then way, 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 way down <laughs> would be Snatch. Probably don't need to see Snatch. Don't need to see Snatch. Rough Night, I think, is was a little under... Uh, underrated yeah. um but and I they think- got pitted against each other i felt uh, too especially rough night and girls trip in a yeah. way that like doesn't benefit uh either but yeah you know i just did that and now that you say that i i hate myself for it because <laughs> it's it's the usual thing of you know oh there are two women-led films in the world right now well they've we've got to know how they face <laughs> off against each other oh, yeah as opposed to how they face off against anything else much like the dance-off in girls trip <laughs> It was a dance-off between rival, you know, girl groups in Girls Trip. That is a perfect yeah. segue. Thank you, Scott Tobias. Thank yeah. you, Genevieve. Thank you guys for your next picture show suggestions. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out August 8th and 10th. Genevieve, what do we have lined up? The warmly received War for the Planet of the Apes confirms the newest Apes series as one of the best science fiction franchises of recent years. So even though Matt Reeves' film has been out for a few weeks, we can't resist the opportunity to go ape over this trilogy-closing installment on the podcast. War for the Planet of the Apes follows humanity's last gasp in the face of the ongoing primate uprising. And while its plot and tone heavily recall Apocalypse Now, it also spends a lot of energy setting up the events of the film that started it all, the Charlton Heston starring Planet of the Apes. So we're going with the obvious choice this time and pairing war with the 1968 original, in part because it will allow us to talk about the larger scope of this surprisingly durable concept, and in part because we really like talking about Planet of the Apes. How has this premise evolved over nearly a half century? Why does it continue to be relevant and exciting to modern audiences? And how long will it take Scott to start singing songs from The Simpsons' Planet of the Apes musical? Tune in in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Carnival of Souls and a Ghost Story, and anything else film-related you have to say. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am at the culture section at vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and I'm at the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture, Variety, uh, Uprox, and uh, I am the editor of the Oscilloscope Laboratories blog, Musings, which which has just published a 6,000-plus word fantastic piece by a uh, writer named Stephen Goldman about Errol Flynn and the uh, the rise and the fall of the swashbuckler. Oh, my God. So it's really good. And his argument is that is that only Flynn could do it. <laughs> And that it died with Flynn and that people have tried, but he had a certain something. It's really deeply researched and full of insight. And um, I really hope people get a chance to read it. 
Oh, fantastic. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me over at TheVerge.com, where I am the film and TV editor, uh, where I write about film and interviewed David Lowry about a ghost story and what the hell was up with that uh, Will Oldham speech. You can also find me recently talking about a TV, the enemy, on <laughs> Pop Culture Happy Hour, uh, which is a one of my all-time favorite podcasts. Um, one of the ongoing hosts is our friend Stephen Thompson, uh, late of the AV Club, now of NPR. But of course, everybody on that podcast is uh, is bright and wonderful people, and it was very exciting to go talk to them. You can find our absent co-host Keith on Twitter at kfips3000, and you can find him at Uproxx, where he's the movies and TV editor. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing this show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. You hurt your